0: Yes, our Sunday School series is back! Yay! Yes, for three weeks we are looking not just at Sunday School stories, we are looking at the messiest Sunday School stories. Now I know some of you are like, we did the last set of stories and those were messy, what makes these different? Well, these stories are going to look at those stories and say, hold my beer and watch this, because... It's crazy, all right. So just that's what we're really doing—three weeks. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be awkward. You're going to feel a little uncomfortable. And be like, was I at church or not? I'm not sure. So anyway, so I'm going to start this off with kind of some polling data. I just want to ask a question out there, and it's all about the word relativity. How many know the word relativity? All right, pretty good, most of you. Now I mean this in a certain way because it can go two directions. It can either be like Einstein's theory of or it can be the moral theory of. And I'm talking about the moral theory of relativity. In other words, people might pose the question this way, do you believe that morals are relative? So that's gonna be my little polling data right now. So I'm gonna ask the room, how many of you believe that morals are fixed and therefore not relative? Raise your hand. All right, pretty good. Let's put the courage on now. How many of you feel that morals are not fixed and may in fact be relative? Ooh, a few, few, that's pretty good, actually. This is gonna be fun today, I like this. All right, this is setting us up pretty nicely. So, good day, it's gonna be interesting, we're gonna see where this all goes, but I'm gonna go ahead and pray right now and get us ready. Also, I wanna remind you, we have an app with notes, but it's mostly just the verses. You can fill in the blanks on this one, because the way it works, it's moving fast. I didn't do a lot of, like, single word point things, so it's just kind of at your discretion there. But I'm gonna pray, get us uh, ready for this, and get right into uh, what we have today. Jesus, uh, I think, you that you are upfront enough to give us stories in the scriptures that are messy and confusing and challenging and head scratchers and we go, what do we do with all of that? And so I pray that you will kind of give us guidance by way of your spirit on how to interact with those things, to face those hard questions, to have answers for those things. And then maybe in that too, just remind us of, hey, here is a life that is blessable. Here is a life that brings burden. Choose blessing over burden every time. Like that would be the reminder to us. And so we ask you to teach us today, open up the story for our hearts and our eyes and our minds, so that uh, from that we can grow and we can learn and we can have an answer for all the things that we run across in your scripture. And so we love you, Jesus, and we thank you in your good name. Amen. All right. So this first story in this three-week series is a weird story. Placed in a weird spot in the book of Genesis, right? And so the book of Genesis, we've done this before as a church, we've hit stories in that book, but really the heart or the core of that book is to give us this progression. From where God starts with this one dude, Abraham, his wife, Sarah, and they have a child, and how he moves the story from that little nucleus to eventually his grandson, and his grandson having 12 sons, and they represent really the 12 nations of, or the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, right? So that's really kind of the heart of Genesis. But when you go through that story, you realize quickly that all of the cast of characters are super messy, right? Like, they're just a mess. They're the kind of people that you wouldn't want your kids necessarily to marry today if they're around today. But they're the people that God uses. So Abraham's a good example. Abraham's a dude, we go, well, he's Father Abraham, and God used him. But yeah, this dude also sex trafficked his wife twice, To get ahead and get some privilege and prestige and everything else. And he also sexually assaulted the maid once. And he really had two kids, not just one kid, but one kid kid's counted and the other kid doesn't. The dude was a mess. Then he had the son, Isaac. Isaac was better than his dad. He only sex trafficked his wife once. So, progression, right? But he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau, frankly, was the better kid. But Jacob becomes the child of favor But Jacob is a lying little conniving scoundrel So much in the story Like robs his brother of his birthright Doesn't care, he lies along the way But from that he gets thrust out Chased off by his brother Ends up in the home of a dude named Laban And Laban then turns the tables Uses a lie to the liar And gets him to marry a sister That he doesn't want to marry So that eventually he can have a sister That he wants to marry And their story's messy too In fact, by the kind of end of his story, uh, he has four wives, 12 sons, and one daughter. Which I think for that girl growing up in that home, that would have been tricked out. Imagine her bringing a boyfriend home and like 12 brothers wanted to grill him, you know? It was a crazy home. It was a crazy family. They put the fun in dysfunction with everything that they did. It really was a mess. And I think we know their story to some degree, right? So you know, here's this uh, you know, guy, Jacob, has, 13, or has 12 boys. Uh, and his boys, to different degrees, are kind of messy in their own right. In fact, the oldest, Reuben, who has the birthright, loses it through a series of shenanigans. Then it goes to Simeon, he also loses it. Then it goes to Levi, he also loses it. So finally, it's the fourth brother in line, Judah... Who's eventually going to be kind of the kingly tribe He has the birthright But he's not the most favored son The most favored son is this dude, Joseph And we know him, the coat of many colors He goes to Egypt, becomes this big guy You know, as far as like, you know, second in command, everything else And and, and so the father, he loves Joseph more than he loves any of the other sons Including the firstborn, now technical son, Judah And here's the thing, Joseph knows it The brothers know it, brothers resent it, and really Joseph's going to suffer for it. And so when you're going through the book of Genesis, you come into then chapter 37. And that's where the plot unfolds. And so Joseph shows up kind of strutting in his coat of many colors, which is really more about stripes of rank, right? And they see him coming, they're like, there's that punk again. He's always flaunting how dad loves him more. Let's kill him, right? And so that's the plan, they're going to kill him. And so they throw him into this dry well, waiting to figure out which way they're going to take his life. But then it's Judah, right, who says, wait, fellas, let's not kill our brother. There's some Ishmaelite traders. Let's just pull him out of the well, sell him to the traders. We'll take that fancy coat of his, dip it in goat blood, go back to our father and say, whoa, your son, your favorite son is dead. We're so sorry. He was torn apart by wild animals. Therefore, dad will think he's dead. We get rid of him, but his blood isn't on our hands. And for whatever set of reasons, the other brothers are like, Judah, that's a good idea. And so Joseph is then kind of sold to these Ishmaelite traders, and eventually they take him down to Egypt, and he's sold into the home of Potiphar's family. Right? So this highfalutin dude in, in Egypt. So that's chapter 37. And then we skip chapter 38, get to chapter 39, and it starts with Joseph in the house of Potiphar and everything that transpires. But then jammed between chapter 37 and chapter 38 is this weird story, man. Like a weird story about Judah. In some ways, you might even go like, why is it there? And what's with the content of this story? Well, that's what we're looking at today. It's in the Bible. We get to check it out. And it's weird. I told you it's weird, right? Just making sure. Okay. About this time, Judah left home and went down to Abdullam, where he stayed with a man named Hariah, and he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he took her. Now, we're going to stop right there for just a second, because when we read this, uh, I, I get it. Like, I get the privilege of, of being supported to really kind of study the Bible and think about stuff, and so I get to note things that most of us, when we're reading, aren't going to note. But one of the most genius things about Genesis is it loves wordplay. It loves to connect dots by way of using similar phrases or typology so that as you're reading the whole story, you get up over the top of it, and you're like, oh, I see a dot there that connects to a dot there, and a thing there that connects to a thing there. And that's exactly what the writer of Genesis does here with wordplay because he uses a phrase, that this idea of went down to. See, where it's similar is because also in the same 37 to 39 section of chapters, it talks about Joseph went down to Egypt. And now, Judah, his brother, is going down to Adullam. That go down to means something. So it's starting to show us a comparison between the two brothers. One goes down by force, the other goes down by choice. Another thing to note here is that it is the firstborn brother, legally according to his father at this point, and the first chosen brother according to the father at this point. They're both in tandem here. And even in that, they're both away from the family. Again, one by choice, one by force. It's in this context that you start to compare Joseph and his brother, right? Where where Judah's going to do things in such a way that are messy and clumsy and sinful, Joseph's going to do things in the same course of time that are wise and honorable and blessable. In fact, when we do the numbers, we realize that both of them are away from their family for the same time, 22 years. Both of them are down elsewhere for 22 years. Both are living their lives for 22 years. But one is doing it right and one is doing it wrong. Another way that we see that uh, Judah here is in bad space is that it says, He saw this nameless Canaanite and took her. That combination, saw and took, every time in Genesis is bad. It's bad. Remember the first time you saw it? The woman saw the fruit. And took it The next time is in Genesis 6 Where these things called Nephilim Which we think are like supernatural beings Like fallen angels They saw and took human women for themselves And we see it again in chapter 12 We see it again in chapter 36 Every time saw and took comes up Saw and took is bad Almost to the point here that it doesn't really seem like this is a marriage as much as he's just kind of taking advantage of this nameless person. Eventually, she is his wife. Here, we're not quite sure if that's the case, but it just shows that he exhibits selfishness over wisdom. More than that, he's taking something that is forbidden to him. Just as the fruit was forbidden to the woman, a Canaanite woman is forbidden to Judah because his grandfather, his father, everybody said never, ever, Get connected with a Canaanite. Don't procreate with a Canaanite. But he goes all in on her, quite literally. He took her, and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Ur. Then she became pregnant again. She gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And then she gave birth to a third son, and named him Shelah. And at that time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Ki-zeb. Now, all these things don't mean a bunch to us, but in Hebrew— The first son means watchful, and the second son means vigorous, and the third son means drawn out, or we could call him forceps, because it's from the womb, like he was a tough birth. First two were easy, third one was a tough, tough birth. But one of the things you may not notice in the way it was said, it's so subtle. But the first son, when he's born, it says, he, Judah, named that boy. But the next two boys, she names those boys. In other words, he shows up for the first one, kind of blows off the next two, right? Not as engaged, not as caring, who knows what he's up to, we don't really know. But you just know, like, here's the sense of this dude's character. He just takes what he wants, he goes after forbidden things, he's not always showing up as a father. And by the way, the name of this community here literally means to be a liar, which is so fitting for who he is. Because what did he do with his father? Your precious son is dead Here's the robe with the blood He was torn to bits by beasts He's a liar living in Liarville So the story has these layers of trying to set us up to understand We have this one brother who's going to be in Egypt Facing hard times and he didn't choose And he's going to do it all right And then we have this other brother who has freedom But he uses his freedom in abusive ways And isn't being what he should most be and so while Genesis 37 to 50 show, again, just this great uh, kind of kind of disposed character in Joseph, it shows just this reckless dude in Judah. And that picks up in verse six. Over the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn Ur to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So boy watchful was apparently not so watchful, and God kills him. He smites him in this context. And this is the only story that I've ever run across in the entire Bible where the idea is like, God himself killed this guy. Like in other words, it's like, look, the ground opened up or fire came down or whatever else, but this is like, God's just like, I just strangled him on the spot. Like, like he was that bad. We don't know how bad he was or what he did, but it was bad enough for this. And so the firstborn son of the family dies with this wife but doesn't have an heir or a son left to her as he dies. So, so he has no heir, she has no protection. That's sort of the problem. And this is where the story gets weird. So then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. Isn't that so romantic? <laughs> right? come on bro take one for the team do your duty impregnate your sister-in-law that's a weird story right it's weird man I, I just look at this and go well what's going on here exactly all right here's a little bit of like we have to do a little history stuff so eventually moses will write the the law or the torah or the instruction but that's 500 years from this story it's a long way off before that happens So what's being referred to here is a more local tradition That eventually Moses will incorporate into his instruction So he borrows it from the culture that they're in But this is known as the Leverite law Leverite literally means brother-in-law law And so here's the way it's structured There is son number one and he dies with a wife but no son Thus son number two is supposed to step in, impregnate the wife Of son number one So that she can have a son The son that she has Is then the heir to the son that died Even though the biological Second son Is kind of the father But by doing that Then it continues the legacy Of the older son that has died Keeps his name intact And then kind of keeps the family rolling In that particular way So that's kind of the structure So it's a weird tradition But it's the tradition nonetheless Now the positive of that is the fact that in this story, Ur would still have a legacy. And because of that, Tamar would have protection and financial wherewithal, especially when Judah eventually dies, she'll actually receive the lion's share of of the, you know, kind of the what's passed down in the will, because he would be like the firstborn to the family. The negative side for Onan is twofold. One, suddenly it goes from a pie of two back to a pie of three that will be cut up in the inheritance. So he's like, oh, I was gonna get so much Right now it's gonna go back to three and then that guy's gonna get more than me That's one part of it. And then the other part is in the current circumstance. He is the firstborn Right, the firstborn is now dead. He's the firstborn if there's no heir So from this he has a decision to make right One is that he can fulfill his duty do what's expected in the leverite law The second is he can reject his duty And if he does, here's what it means. He's gonna have to stand in the middle of town with everybody watching. Tamar comes out, spits in his face, slaps him with her sandal, and says, you're a loser in front of everybody. So it's public shaming. The third option is he manipulates the situation. And so what does boy Vigorous do? He opts to manipulate the situation and buckle up. But Onan was not willing to have a child Who would be his own heir so whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife he spilled the semen on the ground he prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother now i knew when i got to this point like everybody like (gasps) and then you're gonna go home today and somebody's gonna say so what did you guys talk about at church and you're gonna be like coitus interruptus that's the fancy phrase that's what it is right and I know right now you're like, TMI, too much information. Like, Oversharing.com called, wants its story back. Why are we doing this in church? Because I love screwy stories, man. It's the best. And I think it's funny that that is in the Bible. It's like the good book sometimes throws us a curveball. you be like, okay, then what do I do with this crazy story? Well, don't worry, it's not as crazy as it could get. It gets crazier yet, all right? So there's a lot of flair. It's graphic. But here's kind of the, the point of what's going on. Onan at this juncture is more than happy to play, provided he doesn't actually have to pay. So he's using this woman in this kind of swipe right hookup environment. Like sweet, I get party time without any responsibility. I'm all in on that. So that's exactly what he's doing. It's reflecting the idea that he is using her with no plans to aid her, right? He's exploitive, Without any mercy or grace in what he's doing. Thus, the Lord considered evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So, the Lord took Onan's life. So, Captain Vigorous here kicks the bucket by way of God's right foot of retribution, and he's gone. He's gone, though, not really for having sex. God takes his life because he's denying Tamar her right. He's denying to take care in a way that she needs care. He won't step up for his deceased brother and meet the needs of this woman. And so now you have two sons of Judah down, right? There's only one left in the story. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. Now this is not how it should have worked. Culturally, Judah should have brought her home to his house And he should have taken care of her He's not doing that and, and Instead, he's going to send her back to her home Which is to be shameful for her The other thing that's supposed to happen here Is he's supposed to bring her into his home till his son is old enough to marry her Which, according to that culture Is 10 years old Ew, right? Can you imagine a 10-year-old boy Marrying a grown woman? Well, that was kind of the culture, right? But he's shirking his responsibility. And by doing that, he's limiting her potential, her future, her protection. Instead, he just relegates her to a widow. He's like, you know what, you're you're franchise tagged. You're just stuck now in widow status. Which again, this whole thing doesn't simply bring shame to her, but it puts her future at risk because she can't move on to some male that can truly take care of her and provide her for her future. What's worse about this though Is that Judah is a little liar Just like his dad was a liar Just like their granddad was a liar Because he has no intent of giving her to his last son Says Judah didn't really intend to do it Because he was afraid that Shelah would also die Just like his two brothers So Tamar went back to live in her father's home See he concludes that little miss date tree here Because that's what her name means Tamar means date tree He's like she's not date tree She's poison ivy Like, my sons keep dying at her hand. He can't own that it's his boys that are the problem. It must be the woman, right? Because that's what patriarchy loves to do. It must be the girl. Can't be the boys. And so, honestly, she had a deadbeat husband who literally just ended up beat dead because of his offenses. And then she was sexually misused by her brother-in-law And now she's tossed to the wayside by her father-in-law You just need to read this story and conclude very simply All the men in her life suck right now None of them are good men None of them care for her well-being or want to meet her needs And it says in verse 12, some years later, Judah's wife died And when Judah was comforted, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite Went up to Timnah and supervised the shearing of his sheep Now this is just a funny note here because I think it's funny to tell But in Hebrew, this has two different directions it can read It might read, after many days, Judah's woman died And he mourned until comforted The other option, and really the stronger option Is that there were many days, then Judah's woman died He was comforted The difference being like, whew, finally done, right? She was always nameless in the story. It wasn't like she gets any notoriety, like all the other wives get notoriety, she gets nothing. And so from this, it says he's going to shear the sheep, which in that you might be able to add to that if you know what I mean, right? In other words, yes, he's probably gonna go shear sheep, but there may be more to this. It reminds me of like when somebody's like, hey, I'm gonna go with my college buddy to Vegas to the trade show. But while in Vegas, there's other stuff to do. It kind of has that spirit. So it says, he's going to go shear the sheep. But then somebody told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. It's like, they're like, hey, we know what he does while he's here. Your father-in-law is coming, and it's for the shearing, and we know that there's more that tends to happen in his world. And so it's in that space that you now have the opportunity for a confrontation. Right? Tamar's been waiting for a long time To be finally put into the arms Of her her kinsman redeemer here In the third son And it's not happened And it's not going to happen According to the inside knowledge We have about Judah And so from that Even Tamar's aware It says she was aware That Shelah had grown up But that no arrangements Had been made for her To come and marry him So Judah's left her high and dry Makes her future bleak So she's taking action. She changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance of the village of Enema, the road to Timnah. Two things here, the veil. This is brilliant in wordplay again uh, because it's both a disguise and it's a veiled meaning, right? So the disguise is obvious, like, oh, okay, she's wearing a veil, you can't see. But in that culture, veils were worn by betrothed women, Right? So if you were engaged to somebody, you wore a veil. And the veiled meaning of the veil is she's stating out loud in front. Anybody that comes to her, you're a chosen or a taken woman. You're betrothed to somebody. And in her world, it's like, right, Sheila, the third son, I'm betrothed to him according to law. My father-in-law is not pulling the trigger. In fact, he's going out of his way to keep it from happening. But that is, in fact, my situation. That's my legal right. And I'm sitting at the gate waiting for a derelict father-in-law to come and realize he's violating the law but then the location literally means the gate where eyes are opened It's so good i even love that wordplay: play veiled eyes but the place where eyes are opened because what tamar is really doing at this point is exhibiting both resistance and resilience in the face of repeated abuse and dismissiveness like She's just like, man, I'm, I'm going to step up And I'm going to do a risky thing No matter what And so you might be thinking like, This is going to be a case of gotcha journalism, right? Where she's like, you're the guy and everything else I'm going to blame you and everything else Well, not exactly So Judah noticed her And thought she was a prostitute Since she had covered her face So he stopped and propositioned her He says, let me have sex with you he said this not realizing she was his own daughter-in-law. Go ahead and do it inside your little heart, right now. Go ooh 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 ooh, right. But this is not the only time there's been a character in the Bible that's kind of like, "Your Honor, I didn't realize." Like it's pretty common at times, right? In his own family line, like his dad was like, "Your Honor, I didn't realize it was her sister at the night of her wedding," and now you know, like. It's not uncommon So there's going to be some of that here But he's just pulling from his dad's playbook And so He doesn't care that she has the sign Of a veil of being betrothed That doesn't matter to him He finds her at the city gate and he's like Well this is Hooker Haven I guess You must be a prostitute And he's feeling kind of spry So he kind of hits her up His eyes are wide shut And so the haggling begins She says how much will you pay to have sex with me he says, I'll send you a goat from my flock What will you give me as a guarantee that you will send the goat? He says, what kind of guarantee do you want? And she answered, leave me your identification sealed Its cord and the walking stick that you are carrying Now there is so much actually happening in this story That's easy to read over the top of, right? It's part of the larger Joseph and Judah story Because think about it. Judah used an article of clothing to deceive his father. Now, Tamar is using an article of clothing to deceive her father-in-law. And Judah used a goat to deceive his father. Now, Tamar is using a goat to deceive her father-in-law. There's just these parallels. It's like, ah, look at the irony here. Look at the irony there. And even here, Tamar is this typically invisible woman to her father-in-law until now he is got her locked in his lustful gaze right so i didn't notice her before but now i notice her now doesn't realize it's his daughter-in-law but it's a big big problem now so she's been powerless up to this point but now she's going to exercise her power And whether we're comfortable with it or not, she's gonna leverage her power by leveraging her body in relationship to his passion to actually seek justice in the situation. Gets really uncomfortable really fast for our deontology moral ethics, but that's what's going on. Now, here's the problem for this dude. He's not carrying goats on him and she doesn't take apple pay apparently. So she wants a guarantee. And so the guarantee is this stamp, or it's like your family crest in essence. A stamp, a cord, and a staff. What she's saying, you know what? Uh, Just give me your symbols of family and status as kind of like this holding thing. And I'll just hold on to that until you pay me what I'm due. Which is funny, because this is exactly the same thing that happened with Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau was hungry, and he gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew. This guy's giving up his character for just a little fling in the sack. Right? So you're seeing, again, the nuances of his character. And so basically she says, you know what? Give me your wallet, and I'll hold it until you pay me. And so he gave him to her, and then he went into her, and she conceived by him. Actually, in Hebrew, it's very, like, abrupt. You know, he, she, it, like that. And, and the way Hebrews would read this in their culture would be like, wow, she got pregnant the first time. That must be like a God thing, which makes us feel even weirder. Like there must be a design to this in some way, even in the messiness. And so her womb is in essence opened. And so while she has no husband, no protector, uh, she's playing the role of a prostitute at this point. She's doing it to secure her future and her rights in many ways after this it says she went back home took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual so in essence she disrobes her forgetfulness she then dons for a moment her sexual usefulness then goes home and reputs on her forgottenness right but then she waits because it's not going to be forgotten forever later Judah asked his friend Hariah the Adulamite to take the young goat to the woman uh, and to pick up the things that he would given to her as a guarantee, but Hyra couldn't find her, so he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to the city, right? Uh, you know, like Where do I find the girl that was at the gate of eyes that are opened? But what I think is really interesting here is he kind of ups the quality of who she is. See, originally, Judah just thought she was a prostitute. Again, that's just a fling. Here, to call her a shrine prostitute, that's kind of the difference between a hooker and an escort. No one does go, oh, the shrine prostitute, you were doing that for the good of the community to encourage the crops and the rains because that's why you would have sex with a shrine prostitute. If it's just a regular prostitute, it's just because you're horny. And, And that's kind of what it was. So they're trying to clean this up a little bit, but it's not worth cleaning it up. We know what his motives really were. But the men reply, we've never had a shrine prostitute here. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claim that they've never had a shrine prostitute in less location. So it's kind of like, you just got lucky, I guess, dude. Just happened to be the right place, right time with the right prostitute. He says, then let her keep the things that I gave her. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back to look for her again. Why is he saying that? Because if he goes back, All the people in the village are going to be like, let me get this straight. You left your wallet with a prostitute. You're a dummy, right? She strolled off with it. You're the sucker, dude. Not her. You're the dummy, right? But then three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this, she's pregnant by prostitution. So the Hebrew stacks it up. She's been whoring and she has a whoring child. Like that's, it just has this aggression behind it, right? And the fact that it says your daughter-in-law, it's like, oh dude, this is on you. This is your name. This is reputation. This is your family status. She's doing this to you. She's been whoring herself out and now she has this whoring pregnancy and it makes you look bad. So what do you think we should do? He says, bring her out and let her be burned. That's aggressive. Do you also read, it is a ridiculous double standard, right? Oh, the joys of hypocritical patriarchy, right? That's what it is. It's fine if he wants to hire a prostitute. It's not fine if she wants to be a prostitute. Right? He's the good guy, she's the bad guy in the story. So he concludes, her crime is so heinous. Let's bring her out and burn her. In the law of Moses, in the Torah, down the road, burning will be reserved for certain things. This is not among them, but he's just all over it, right? But, oh, I love verse 25, but, big but, as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely, Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Oh, snap, baby. Dropping bombs, man. And clue style is like, it was Judah with the seal, the cord, and the staff at the gate of eyes wide open now. So cool, I love it. She's just flipping the cultural script because all of these men think they have power over the sole woman. They think they have control over her destiny and they are judging her in the space, not realizing she's flipping the script and she's turning it around. And she's saying, you think you have power and you think you're so much more ethical and you think you've got it figured out. But listen, you're all hypocrites now. You're the ones in trouble, not me. And I love the way she does this. She does it with panache, which is a great word. Because she, she doesn't make a declaration. She doesn't say, and you are that man. No, she's brilliant. She actually does it with like this invitation. It's kind of like she's like, um, whose stuff could this be? Hmm? So good. I love it. It says, Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son. Now, honestly, I read this and I go, she was more righteous than you, bro? You ain't righteous at all, fool. You've been a mess in the entire story. But it raises the question for us, how on earth could she be righteous? Like, you look at what she's done. She fakes prostitution, has sex with a dude. How is it righteous? We have to get in their sandals a little bit, but I'm going to give you five ways in which this is why she's declared righteous here. First of all, her motive was consistent with both custom and law. So her motivation was not, I'm just looking for a hookup or whatever else. She's like, no, this is a legally binding thing that people are not following through on. So that's one part of it. The second thing is she's going out of her way to honor her dead husband, who again was a deadbeat. But she's like, no, I'm still gonna honor his name. Even though he wasn't here for me, even though he wasn't a righteous man, I'm gonna do the right thing in relationship to that. Another thing that's important is that, you know what um, it, it, It's kind of like she's the one that's been truly I- exploited in the whole thing and, and she's been used and taken advantage of both as a daughter and as a prostitute but then she's using that to kind of take advantage of the situation that she should have always been granted this right anyway like she's just kind of again turning the tables, flipping the script, spinning stuff around. Another thing is that she's going out of her way to honor that which Her Father-in-law is refusing To honor And thus he And apparently the writer of Genesis Concludes her, her conduct Isn't sinful but in fact her conduct Is worthy of being called Righteous or she and her Person is righteous Which it's interesting Because when you look at the book of Genesis there's only two people In the entire 50 chapters That are declared righteous Abraham and Tamar they're the only two that are called righteous in the entire work. So I look at that and I go, wow, a holy hooker. That's crazy. Who would have expected? But that's kind of what she is. But it's not really that she's a hooker. That wasn't really her motivation. That wasn't really her heart. And it confronts Judah so much so that it says, Judah never slept with Tamar again, which I'm like, that's a good idea. You should probably skip that, bro, right? But see, even in this, it starts to show the redemptive arc of Judah, right? Because now you see he's going through a process and transformation over this 22-year cycle, just as Joseph, when you read his story, he's going through transformation in the same 22-year cycle. So in the story, what you see with Judah is, even though he's on the spot in front of everybody, getting called out in essence, like he's like, burn her! Oh, wait, I'm the, the creep here. But that's great. He takes ownership of, of his own sin that's the first thing second thing he doesn't cast blame he doesn't start going oh you know but two wrongs don't make a right tamar he doesn't do that stupid stuff he's like i'm not righteous she's righteous i'm an idiot she did the right thing right i love the fact that he's not shaming her at this point but he's just owning his own shame and then even in this he's moving forward in right ways i'm not going to sleep with her anymore i'm not going to keep making the same mistake Thus, when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. And while she's in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet thread around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back in, and out came his brother. I would be freaking out if I saw that, for the record. I was honestly thinking about this, like, and, you know, like, wow, man. I would be like, oh, if we just had an iPhone to video, that would have been awesome. Nah, not so much, right? But I'm like, also, this midwife was quick. Like, quick, give me a scarlet string. All right, so aside from that though, the midwife says, What? How did you break out first? So she or he named them Perez, which means break out literally. Like, he's busting a move, boy. That's who he is. Then the baby with a scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zara. But again, this is another major theme in Genesis. Right, this idea of the younger usurping the older in birth orders, it happens repeatedly throughout the book. So this is just, again, kind of documenting the fact that in a very kind of theological way, God u- loves to use the lesser to kind of overthrow the greater. Right, just reminded us it's always about being least, not about being greatest, you know, because that's just the pattern that God uses. And so from this, again, in a weird sort of way, uh, Perez is the son of Tamar and Ur, because now it's this firstborn heir thing, and then Zaren is the son of Judah and Tamar, which gets really weird at like Thanksgiving, I'm sure, right? But but in a weird other sort of way, they're kind of both Judah. So it, it's just kind of a mess. I know it's like it's like banjo playing backwater deliverance level crazy in this story. But in this there are lessons. So quick three lessons. First of all, it's a tale of two brothers, which is kind of what I was trying to highlight. Like, why does God dump Genesis 38 into this matrix? Well, it is highlighting the difference between Judah and Joseph. Judah left the family by choice. Joseph left the family by force. Both take foreign wives. But again, Judah by choice and Joseph more by circumstance. Both have sons whose birth orders get flipped. Both Judah and Joseph have the same exact situation. We see with Judah, he kind of goes after women out of his own kind of sexual drive, where Joseph resists a woman who is after him in her sexual drive. Shows the difference of character. Thus, one of their lives is very selfish, the other life is very selfless. But in the course of those 22 years, lessons were learned, people grew, they realized stuff about themselves, and eventually, Their lives come back together at the end of that 22 years. Judah goes back to his family just as there's a famine, and they travel to Egypt to intersect with this this power broker that they don't know is their brother Joseph, that they just get, you know, threw in a pit and sold off, you know, years and years earlier. They don't know it. And you know who brokers the deal kind of between Joseph when he's not recognized and the brothers? Judah. Right? So their lives come back together And Judah's learned enough wisdom and enough insight And he becomes selfless to the point of saying I'll stay, send my brother, don't let this happen Like He's trying to figure out a way to stitch it all together To bring the family together And through the actions of both Judah and Joseph The family is reunited and reoriented And finds a new home there in Egypt For the next 400 plus years And so even though his life was a mess And he made all kinds of stupid mistakes That was still used To be a guiding agent to bringing the family back together God uses the mess At the same time This is also a tale of one messy hero Right Where Potiphar's wife was just cougaring Right Tamar isn't a Potiphar's wife Tamar is actually trying to uh, Fulfill her responsibility to her deceased husband Kind of plot a future That doesn't just simply affect her But affects many beyond her And so she's working with what she has Right She has certain tools at her disposal. She lives in a world that is just what it is. She has limits that are set upon her. And she's willing to do what others refuse to do. And she takes this occasion. And again, it doesn't just simply secure her future, but it secures the future of the nation, the future of the kings, and the future of Christ. And that's perhaps the coolest part of the story. If we fast forward To the Christian Testament The first work of the Christian Testament The Gospel of Matthew It opens this way This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus The Messiah A descendant of David And of Abraham And you get this laundry list Of all these names you can't pronounce But then peppered in there Are these names Tamar Rahab Ruth Bathsheba And Mary Right They're the only five names And you'll notice four of those five Pagan Gentiles People that they were commanded never married them Not to the 10th generation Not to the first generation Mary's the only one that is actually a Judahite Which means she comes from the tribe of Judah The rest of them are outsiders Another thing that's true about all of these women uh, They were seen by their peers As being sexually questionable Like even Ruth Her story has some sexually questionable stuff about it The others you know And even Mary You know her town wasn't like You're a virgin with a baby Right like no, we know you got knocked up. That's what you. They all are, now it is, right? But what it teaches is that these unlikely, messy heroes are the types of people Jesus uses, right? They're like marks of grace, and I believe part of the reason that we look at Jesus and say he's the savior of sinners is because he's like, look at my family tree. They're a mess. Are an absolute mess and yet god used the mess the folly the foolishness the shame the repentance the correction the learning to bring it forward and if there's any final lesson that i have as we close it's the lesson that listen god doesn't wait till we've got it figured out to use us he does not wait for that because if he's waiting for that nothing gets done No, God is an epic business in his grace of using messy people to do gospel things. That's always been the way it's been, and it's always going to be the way it's been. Because God doesn't use perfect people, but he uses people who can learn and grow and adapt and be humble and from that hopefully advance what he's doing. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your love I think about anybody that might be in this room today, and I think about anybody that might be watching online where they're not a Christian, don't follow you, but from this they're like, man, I am a messy person, but I want to be a messy person used. Man, if that's you today, that's a prayer way. That's where you just say, Jesus, I acknowledge my sin. I see your cross. I know you rose to give me life. I want life in you so I can be used by you, mess and all, for what you want to do in my life. If you make that your prayer, we want to know, We have a tile on our app. You can click, a number will be on the screen when you open your eyes. You can just text us and say, I made that decision today. Jesus, for the rest of us, we know deep down inside we're messy. If we don't think we're messy, then we're messy. (laughs) Like we have a different mess problem. We're all messy people. And I thank you that it's your grace that saves, not our works, not our goodness, not our effort, not our cleaning ourselves up and hosing ourselves down. It's your grace. In fact, it's that grace that we remember today, even as we get ready for communion, that you came to the sick, not the healthy. You came to sinners, not those who are super righteous. You came for messy. You rescue messy, you use messy. And so even today, we remember it's your blood that cleans up the message, your body given that cleans up the message, your grace that cleans up the message, your life bestowed that cleans up the mess. And so we honor you this day as we partake of this communion we think of what you've given to us so that we might fully give ourselves back to you. We love you Jesus and thank you in your name. Amen. So right